It's the Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. Bring on the big muscly man and hit that gong. So we are back for another Film File. I am indeed Lee Ford and you are indeed still here, Andy Meakin. <laughs> How are you, Andy? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. We've been lovely and busy this past Fantastic. few days at work uh, for a film that we will be talking about later, Shang-Chi, which we've gone to full capacity in screens. We've, we've now oh, removed that 50% that. restriction where, um, because with us having the wider seating, it actually still keeps a decent distance between you and the person next to you. Yeah. Um, as, as we know from when we're sat next to each other watching various films. Um, and so like, we've not had any backlash from our customers from it. In fact, we've started to see a rise in admissions. Oh, and this news. weekend with Shang-Chi, we, we have seen not quite sold out screens, but pretty close, which has been absolutely marvellous. It's been so strange because we're, we're not used to this level of business again, but it's flowing quite well. And we're seeing great reaction from the customers with the film as well. And I think that this is a film that's going to have legs. It's absolutely great. We're going to be talking more about it later in the main review. But yeah, Shang-Chi is so far looking quite positive. So my question for you then, Andy, is because now you're working and operating at full capacity, does that mean that other films you're seeing a benefit from are people coming into um, other theatres to see other films or catching up with films that they might have been a little reticent about in the first place? Well, we saw it last week with uh, People Do Nothing Big in Japan the spin-off of the BBC um, satire show. And that managed to I'm glad you didn't use the word comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I find it quite amusing. Um, it's one of them that it's, it sporadically entertains in between like the bits that you just go, I'm not sure if this is a satire or an actual documentary now because I've seen these people come in. And bizarrely, I've seen those kind of people come in to watch this very film that is a satire of their whole I see. culture, which is hilarious that happens a lot um, <laughs> but we saw it with that on the opening weekend that we had some sold out shows of it and so it, it is that the extra capacity is prob- allowing other films to breathe a bit more and it also allows that if something does sell well we can hold it over f- for more future weeks without it upsetting other films that are coming in because with everything having bigger capacities there's got less arguments from the distributors saying well we want at least this many seats yeah. So it, it's beneficial to the industry as a whole. And I'm hoping that what we're seeing with Shang-Chi over the past couple of days is uh, going to be something that we'll see with Bond when it comes out later. Interestingly enough, Andy, um, last weekend I was at a, a festival. Now, it was an indoor festival. It was run over two days. And even though it said sold out, it was clearly not operating at full capacity. And I got talking to one of the bands who were, who were the headline band on, on one of the days. And they said they'd been playing gigs, which even though at the front it said sold mm. out, clearly from their point of view on stage and looking across the audience, wasn't full capacity. So yeah. I, I've got a gig in a couple of weekends. So it's going to be interesting to see whether that's that rule setting is starting to diminish, whether people are... Uh, are going to feel more comfortable going into it, and yeah. that capacity rule. Do you have a Do you have a, a passport to come in yet, or is that part of your not guidelines? Yet, no, that's 
that's not in place yet, and uh, the cinema so the cinema association haven't specified that it's definitely going to be a rule at this point in time. We're waiting for we are in the in the industry. We always have to wait for what the UK cinema association's rulings are. Yeah. And then we react to them. We could start to stipulate it ourselves. We can easily say, as a company, we will insist on vaccine passports. But at this point in time, we've not. It doesn't rule out that we won't. It's. I mean, let's not get into the debate on to whether they're a no, good thing or a bad to, thing. I don't want to that particular gold mine of. Uh, of it can get very fiery. <laughs> um, but you know, if it does get introduced, we will have to adhere to it. If it doesn't, yeah then there'll be no restrictions. We've relaxed a lot of the restrictions. I mean, we're seeing, you're seeing in general life anyway, people, less and less people are wearing masks. Yes. So now that it's not a legal requirement, we can only advise people to wear them. But we're still seeing a substantial number who are still wearing masks. And some people who come in without the mask and see us wearing the masks and go, oh, oh, and they'll take their mask out of the pocket and react to us wearing them. Yeah. So some people are still being cautious, but I think a lot of people, now that the double jabbings have been taking place. I think a lot of people feel a lot more confident in society, basically, and in mixing yeah. with other people on the streets, in shops, in events, venues, etc. And just walk past any pub at night, and you might as well be looking at a, a vision from 2017 because they're back to normal activities in there. I went to uh, an event yesterday uh, because... It was a it was a foodie event, food and drink event in the afternoon that they have in Sheffield. Great little event, uh, like a market where it's it's lots of street food, and it was interesting. That was uh, that was kind of slightly open air, so there was no masks at all involved. Uh, mm. The festival I went to was very very COVID secure. Uh, you had to produce evidence. You had to have had a. Um, a test within a certain amount of days and be able to mm-hmm. prove that before coming in. So I've seen, uh, I've seen both sides of, of, uh, of public. What's the word I'm looking for? I've seen both sides of eventing and seen how yeah. it's taking place, but I'm, I'm, I'm a bit cautious still supermarkets in particular. I'm, I still seem to be wearing a mask, but I I've noticed places I'm going now becoming less and less my ma- um, mask necessary. Yeah. Um, Aside from that, um, this week I've been relaxing, obviously watching films because that's how I normally relax. But also the new Iron Maiden landed, Iron Maiden album landed this week, uh, Senjutsu. Oh, yes, I noticed that. I'll be playing it on my No Barriers radio show, rock show, free plug, and it will get played on that. (laughs) It's an interesting album. Um, I I feel it's got like a, a somewhere in time kind of aesthetic to it. But it's not just me, and I've seen a lot of people say this online. The sound mixing seems to be burying Bruce's vocals. Okay. And I know that he had his, his brush with throat cancer, which he's got through. And you can just about make out that he's not quite got the, the range that he used to have or the power that he used to have. And I'm wondering whether they're just trying to disguise his struggles with it underneath the layer of like the multiple guitars and bass. It's still a great album. Don't get me wrong. I, I've listened to it about four times over now. And the more that I listen to it, the more I'm falling in love with the epic length of it. But it is one of them that it just makes you, if you compare Book of Souls to this, Book of Souls had the very dynamic Bruce. It had the, yeah, the air raid Dickinson, as he used to be referred to, whereas this doesn't. And it it was jarring to me at first, but I'm starting to warm to it. 
Okay, you should have had that as your neat thing. Well, I should have done, but I've got another neat ah, thing. Ah, you see, I my, thought you were. My neat thing is a lot of heart later, so oh, I'm not. We'll I'm see. not jumping the gun here. I just thought that I needed to mention the new Maiden album because you know I'm a bit of a fan. You can because you can. This is your <laughs> podcast, Andy. You can do whatever you like. <laughs> On today's show, what will we be bringing you? Well, we have our usual deep dive this week into John Carpenter and Kurt Russell's. Escape from New York. We'll be looking at this week's episode of What If. Andy and I will both be reviewing Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Andy, you'll be talking about... I'll be mentioning Worth, um, which landed on Netflix this past week, and Here Today, which is on limited release across the UK cinemas. And you'll be getting, you know, the kind of friendly banter that you would expect from the film file. But first, as ever, Andy Meakin has scoured the interweb to bring you all the latest goss, casting news, rescheduling, anything to do with movies, in the item known at its friendliest as only the news. Okay, as you know on the news, right here on the news, we always give you an indication of what the box office has looked like for the previous weekend. So, Andy... I'm thinking Shang-Chi. Yes, it's all about Shang-Chi because all eyes are being on Shang-Chi because this was the first MCU film since like reopening after lockdowns that wouldn't be going to premiere, Disney premiere at the same time. In fact, it's one of the biggest films that Disney haven't done, the joint release streaming. So everyone has been looking at it. Bob Chapek said... It was an interesting experiment in a rather cynical way, as though he expected it to fail. And a lot of people have had their knives out wanting it to fail. There's been articles over the past couple of weeks that are saying, oh, it's not tracking very well at the box office. Oh, it's going to bomb. Oh, it's going to be a disaster for Marvel. So, egg in the faces of all of those people <laughs> who are naysayers. The, I'm going to say egg fried well, rice in the faces. Is that yes, culturally appropriate? It, it's <laughs> probably not, but we're going with it. <laughs> Ouch. Sorry. I apologise. So, it, it, they were initially predicting maybe a 35 to 40 million opening because Labor Day weekend, it's worth noting in the US, people do other things. No one goes to the cinema over Labor Day and it never does. Any films released on Labor Day weekend don't do good. And then as it got to Friday, it kind of like looked at, oh, it might finish on 50 for the weekend. And then it got to Saturday. And it was like, oh, it could tentatively get to like 60. Well, it's finished with a strong 71.4 million for the first three days. Oh, That's Friday excellent. to Sunday. And bearing in mind the full tracking figures will now include the Monday, it was tracking for an additional 15 million for the bank for the holiday Monday, taking the total to 90 million. That is a solid start for a new character in the MCU, yeah. and also a record-taking box office weekend for Labor Day weekend in the US. That, like I said, usually sees less returns. That's fantastic, and and it has been a. A little bit of an underdog. Not that we didn't have faith in it, but there's there's so many factors, as you mentioned. Labor Day, the fact that COVID, you know, you can't get rid of the COVID. Uh, it, it is a, it's a big factor on, on box office. And of course, this is one of those films. And, and we honestly, right here in the film file, believe that Black Widow suffered because of the joint release. But this is this is seeming as though it's 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 the underdog that's won. And having, having seen the film, which we'll be talking about later, uh, I, I can concur. This is an underdog of a movie, but is a winner. Once you throw in the international money, it finished around 150 million worldwide already. And that's without the Chinese market where the film still hasn't secured a release. So 
so far, it's all looking very positive. Now, let's let's just rein ourselves back in before we get too ahead of ourselves because all eyes are still on the week two drop-off. And as we've reported before, recent day and date releases and even some cinema-only releases saw between a 60% and 70% drop-off at the box office on the second week. Shang-Chi, it's worth noting, is tracking well and analysts are hopeful for a smaller drop-off as word of mouth on the film and lack of availability on streaming services are going to work in its favour. It looks like this interesting experiment is going to show that, you know what, people want to go back to the cinema. It does. And you know what? It has got good word of mouth. Now, you'll have got a, a, a better experience than I have of being able to analyse that. But talking amongst people I know and around factors that I know, people have come in and go, that was so much better than what I was expecting. So I, I don't know why the expectations were low, but maybe that's uh, is about the launching of a new of a new character and, and the expectations were low for Guardians, let's be honest. They aren't the established big guns. At the cinema, hearing people coming out of the screen, the general buzz has been really, really positive. Loads of comments of like, that was better than expected. As like, oh, I really want to see that again. It's quite frequent over this past weekend. So it's tracked beautifully. I'm really pleased that Marvel have managed to pull it out of the bag with a, an obscure character mm-hmm. once again that they've managed to bring to the mainstream. And what a great film. We will talk about it later in the review. So no spoilers of how the review is going to go. But I suppose you can tell that me and Lee both kind of enjoyed it. <laughs> Stick around. <laughs> and so moving on from that, let's move on to release date shuffle because there's been a little bit of a release date shuffle over the past week. Jackass 2 has moved to February next year, which, let's be honest, we called it. We said that Jackass 2, with the full release slate that there was in October, would be the one that would be likely to shuffle out the way. Because who's bothered with a Jackass film? You know, you took the words right out of my next sentence. Who cares, basically? Because I think it's I think it's a, a franchise which has been, and quite frankly, pleased that it's gone. Now, all the cast of Jackass are now getting to that age bracket that... Just getting out of a chair is going to be dangerous to them. <laughs> yeah, don't touch that TV remote. <laughs> Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville, and I'm reaching for my snatogen. <laughs> it, it, I, I can't see. I, I don't want to watch j- potential geriatrics almost killing themselves. And in in the past, Jackass films, they've always wore makeup when they've disguised as old people, like doing stunts in the street. Now they'll have to wear makeup to disguise as young people <laughs> doing stunts in the street. I, it's moved to February next year. It's still planned for a cinema release. I won't be surprised if it ends up becoming a streaming release. Uh, it's not going to be a shock to the system if that gets announced at some point. Or particularly missed, because let's be honest, nowadays, with the, the sort of films that we get, and this, the huge change in cinema since the Jackass movie started coming out, is that the audiences want something entirely different, especially coming back into a post-COVID world. And yeah. keeping in mind that it would just play better as a home viewing. Ultimately, will play yeah. so much better because that's how really it was always meant to be. The bigger one is that Top Gun Maverick has moved to summer 2022. Yes, I saw that. And that's having a knock-on effect, I believe, with Mission Impossible 7, isn't it? Yeah, that's uh, shunted back longer, and which obviously puts a whole... like it, It's basically the whole lot of the... Paramount big epic productions are getting juggled further on and further on down the line. Now, we were kind of expecting that Mission Impossible 7 would be delayed anyway because there's been a break in shooting a couple of times. This film has been been filmed forever because they're still <laughs> doing pickups and still doing 
massive stunts. Now, before anybody goes, yes, but, but, yes, but, I know they are filming seven and eight back to back. Yeah, they filmed them both back to back, but there have been a few interruptions most recently, a couple of weeks ago, when there was a COVID outbreak on the production. And so that has set them back bit and bit. So I, I think it's better that they've got this time to, you know, not panic about hitting that release date that was getting closer and closer. Mm. But it's the Top Gun Maverick that is pretty much in the can that they've held off because obviously Paramount don't have the confidence and they don't want to drop it straight to their Paramount Plus service. Yeah. They want it to be a big screen outing. And from all we've seen about it, that's where that film needs to needs to play. Yeah, I mean, even the, even the first Top Gun film was a very cinematic film that I never quite understood the love of because I no. first saw it on home release. So I, cu- I couldn't understand why people raved about it in the same way that I still rave about Avatar despite the fact that I've not seen it on home release, uh, probably because of the fact that I've not seen it on home release, because I remember the cinematic experience. And I think Top Gun films need that. Um, in reaction to Top Gun moving, Sony has moved Ghostbusters Afterlife. It's already done this a few times, but it's moved it one week to fill the slot that Top Gun Maverick was originally in, because okay. now it gives it a two-week gap between Eternals coming out and Ghostbusters Afterlife which I think is a smart move because Eternals, if it does well, will be hogging a lot of the big screens and putting pressure on Ghostbusters to take lower capacity screens. So it gives them more of a chance of being able to get a good capacity of screens on cinema releases. Everyone's shuffling now just to fill spaces in the best way possible. So it looks like a lot of the shuffles that are going on are more in reaction to the big films moving, gives them smaller films or other big films a better chance to breathe. So, on the back of the Shang-Chi news earlier, you remember that we were saying last week that Venom 2 might not stick its October the 15th release date, and it was looking like it might shuffle? Looking rocky, wasn't it, for that one? And if I remember, because it has been a week, and you know what my memory's like, Andy, it has been a week, and we <laughs> were looking at maybe an early early January release, or early part of the year, which is not a predominantly an opening window for uh, for a major blockbuster event. You usually get your art films, as we've said before, Oscar contenders, that kind of thing. Well, it, it, we need to report that Venom 2 has moved. Ah. It has moved earlier. Really? Oh, Instead that's of coming out on October the 15th, it is going to be landing on October the 1st. And this came in direct response to how well Shang-Chi played at the box office, showing that there's a demand for superhero and comic book kind of movies. And Sony have suddenly got the confidence in this film to go, you know what? Let's bring it out earlier. Let's drop it two weeks early and give themselves a nice clear window of most of October. Now, a quick mention and a rain back at this point in time, because we need to remember that in the UK and Europe, there's another film that comes out the day before that, yeah. that might actually steal its thunder a bit. Uh, it's something about not dying, no time, uh, to, no time to bond, day. or something. I, I, I'm not sure, <laughs> but I know there's a spy who loves me, who's got a gold uh, finger. Yep, the... I don't know. <laughs> and in this heat, you, you better check out my thunderball. I've got. I'm just going to say, Doctor, no more of that. <laughs> <laughs> now, even though a lot of people are assuming that this news from Sony for moving Venom two weeks early is international. I doubt that they're going to go head-to-head with Bond. Yeah. I suspect that we, if it does come out early in the UK, it will come out one week earlier. So we'll be looking at the 8th instead of the 1st. They're not going to put it up head-to-head against Bond. Bond is going on sale ticket-wise in the matter of a, another week. And right. that's expected to sell out most 
large screens. Sony would be daft to drop it then. In the US, Bond doesn't come out until the 8th, so it makes sense for Venom to jump the gun and get some business before Bond comes in and steals everything. And just a reminder for listeners, what is the UK release date for the new James Bond movie? The UK release date for the Bond movie is the 30th of September. The tickets will go on sale on the 13th of September. So get ready to click on those websites and crash all the websites of your favourite cinema. And on the back of that, there has been rumours that Bond... And these are purely, purely rumours, and I wouldn't give any plots away because I don't know any, is that um, Bond will die, uh, which has been mentioned a ton of times, but they're never going to put that in a trailer. (laughs) Please, if that's what you think you're going to see in a trailer, it's misdirection at its best. And also the fact that um, I'm starting now to see press with things like an interview with the director, Carrie Fukunaga. Yeah. So that's always a, a, an indication when you start to see those press items that, that, that they are gearing the film's up, ready to leave. that the film is ready to, to be released. Are they going to kill off Bond? We won't know until the film comes out. And I've seen people online saying there's been so many trailers for it, we've pretty much seen the film. Have you? You've seen the three-hour film that is coming out from yes. just 15 minutes of total footage that you've seen. <laughs> you've not seen the full film. The, the, you've seen what they want you to see to misdirect you and catch you off guard. I can't wait. Huge no, Bond too. fan. Huge Bond fan. Looking and forward to it. I'm there. I'll be there um, with yeah, you. Yeah, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig may have been in like one of the weakest films, <laughs> Quantum Solace and looking at you, but I've enjoyed his outing overall. I, I think he's been a strong presence in it and I'm looking forward to seeing how he bows out. So I've got a little bit. We've had a big trailer drop this last week. We've had trailers landing for James Wan's new horror film, Malignant, which hit this week. Mm-hmm. Roland Emmerich's Crashing the Moon into the Earth film, Moonfall, teaser arrived this week. I can't wait, for all the wrong reasons. (laughs) As I mentioned, there's been two Bond trailers which have landed. There was the Red Notice trailer, which is a Dwayne Johnson, Ryan Reynolds and Gal Gadot uh, movie that's appearing on Netflix. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, obviously it's got Ryan Reynolds in it, so of course I'm looking forward to it. But having The Rock with Ryan Reynolds. Really? Last time we saw those two on screen, there was the chemistry that they sizzled with in Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, everybody so, um, sizzles I'm, with Ryan Reynolds. Have you noticed? I, I, I do more than sizzle with him. Man crush, <laughs> man crush alert. Man, man crush alert. And the news is that the new trailer for the Batman is confirmed for DC's Fandom event that comes out in October. Yeah, all, all the brief outline of what's going to be covered in Fandom has been released. And I'm sure there'll be some surprises along the way as well that they'll hold off on. But we kind of know that we're going to see footage from quite a few of the upcoming projects. Kind of like the ones that we speculated a few weeks ago that we'd see the first early footages of. Um, I'm looking forward to the Fandome event. I tuned into it last year and loved following along. I love those kind of things. I will sit up until 5am because these are always on East, East Coast America or West Coast American time. And so up, us in the UK have to sit up in the early hours of the morning. But I am happy to do that because, let's be honest, I'm a film geek. You are. So on the back of your Batman trailer, um, expected soon, we've also been anticipating the Matrix trailer landing. You're not going to tell me you've got some updated news. Yes. Any day now, the full Matrix trailer for Matrix Resurrection is going to land. But in the meantime, you can pop yourself over to whatisthematrix.com where you get presented with a red pill and a blue pill. You choose whether you want to remain inside the Matrix or escape into the real world. And whichever one you click on will have a different voiceover talking through like you think that this is reality 
reality and fiction have merged, et cetera, et cetera. But whatever time you log on to that pe- that pill, the trailer will actually say, you think it's 6.14 p.m. You think it's 7.20 in the evening. It reflects the time that you log on. So it kind of breaks through that fourth wall aspect. But in addition, in amongst all the Matrix scroll dropping down the screen, there's little half a second glimpses of scenes from the film. And then if you watch it again on the same pills, you see different glimpses every now and then. I've watched these about four or five times already, (laughs) and I still don't know if I've seen everything. And I can't wait. It's a nice little way of teasing it. And I remember when the first Matrix film came out and the Wachowskis were quite pioneering in the use of the web, like internet, and like giving a digging down the rabbit hole to uncover the clues. They're doing it again. They know how to utilize the technology to really sell it. So I'm excited about Matrix Resurrections. What I've seen on those little clips has whetted my appetite and the full trailer. Oh, it's going to be on our doorstep any day now. Can't wait. Really looking forward to that one. Moving on from that, June has played its first screening at the Venice International Film Festival this past week, uh, which means that the first critical responses have come out. And it's looking like the critics are extremely happy with it and want more. Yes, I've noticed that. I saw that uh, Empire gave it a a five-star review. Um, Most of the reviews I've read have been absolutely, absolutely spectacular in its uh, its approach. I think I've seen one, and I wouldn't say it was a withering review. Uh, It just went back to the confusion of the source material. I think yeah. that, that might have been the Hollywood Reporter. I think that was probably the weakest out of the several that I read. Most of it was was saying what a what a epic piece of work. I mean, there's still uncertainty over whether the film's going to perform because, as we know from experience, regardless of whether the critics are all over a film, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to land well with the audience. Look at Blade Runner 2049, critically acclaimed, did nothing at the box office. Yeah. And I still think that Dune is a hard sell to the general public. And none of the trailers that I've seen, even though I'm a huge Dune fan and I'm just like all over them and can't wait, I watch them and think, but if I didn't know Dune already, would this make me care? Yeah. And it, I don't think it does. And it's a shame. Um, but like we previously reported, it seems that Warner Brothers might be willing to take a small loss on the film. Not too big a loss, potentially greenlighting the second part, which, according to Villeneuve, is all set and ready to go. As he said, when you make a movie in two parts, necessarily when you do the first part, you have to know where you're going to, what you're going to do in the second part. So I will say that I'll be very ready to go quite quickly. To go quickly into a movie of that size, you need to make sets, costumes. So we're talking about months. But if there's enthusiasm and the movie is greenlit sooner than later, I will say I'll be ready to shoot in 2022 for sure. So if Warner Brothers see an opening weekend that they're happy with and give the thumbs up, we could be seeing the film itself coming out in 2023. Yeah. Uh, which will be part two of the story, which controversially for fans of the, the book to have this first book split into two parts seems a bit bizarre to us, but I'm, I'm excited to see how he's managed to make the first film feel like a film in yeah. and of itself. Um, also with regards to the June screening, it's, there's been an amusing thing going around on Twitter with regards like all the writ- creative critics reactions, people taking the name June out and dropping in venom, let there be carnage instead. <laughs> Oh, so the was, internet. <laughs> and it, it had me chuckling away. There was a there was one which was taking the, like, June received a 35-minute standing ovation at its screening to Venom Let There Be Carnage had a 35-minute standing ovation. I was just like, yep. So with that one, I, I just re- replied to that. It's like, and it's heard that Scorsese was front and centre pointing at the screen saying, that's cinema, that's cinema. <laughs> um, 
there's one which was a critic who was just like, I've never had an experience like this in a, in a, in a theatre before, but this is the most lavish and beautiful experience that I've ever had with film. Venom, let there be carnage. <laughs> needs to be <laughs> the, the, the line that everyone aims for. And it's just, I, I love that humour occasionally like from the film Twitter community that when they latch onto something can just have fun with it and it's just grown out of control. It's a great little meme. You never know. Venom, let there be carnage. Might we are, be we are doubting it in advance. <laughs> we don't know. We aren't Andy. We don't know. We don't know. It could be. Now let's move on to some other news. So Netflix have acquired the global rights to the newest Texas Chainsaw Massacre from Legendary Films. I didn't know there was one in pre-production, to be honest. I, I'd seen rumours of this, but no details. But it's now been confirmed. Netflix have got the rights. And as is the current trend, it's a film that is going to ignore all the sequels that have taken place after the first film and just be a continuation of the story from Toby Hooper's 1974 original. Basically, okay. the, the it's, go, it's going to say that Leatherface hasn't been seen or heard of ever since that date. The aim is to, as they've been saying, bring the most notorious horror franchise back to life in the same bold and provocative manner that it was first introduced to the world. Elsie Fisher, Sarah Yarkin, Jacob Lattimore and Mo Dunford are co-starring. David Blue Garcia helms, helms the f- film, which has already been shot and completed as in post-production. And it's uh, Fede Alvarez who's one of the key names in the production of this. I like Fede Alvarez. Um... Just to to stick a little while with this idea of reboots and reimaginings, especially within the horror franchise, and we've seen it, we've seen it recently with Halloween. Um, let's disregard everything that's come before and go back to Halloween Two. Yeah, Candyman as well. Last week, when they do it, it, it's it's okay. But I think Candyman to talk about a film we reviewed last week. That's how you deal with it. You make it a a, a reboot, but you make it a, a sequel in name and. Yeah, you can be very smart about it, and it, it just feels a little bit of an easy out now. Let's just forget everything that you've seen for the last few years, whether you enjoyed them or not. Now, ultimately, it doesn't mean a, a, a sack of beans about anything. If you've enjoyed those movies, then that's yeah. your choice. It doesn't doesn't make them non films. They aren't going to disappear from your from your film collection or from some sort of streaming service. It just gets a bit confusing. I think I think Candyman had the right approach. Let's not ignore yeah. what's gone before, but let's do something different with it uh, and, and make it relevant. Just saying. Yeah. Just saying. Sticking with the idea of reboots and sequels, Disney have a few reboots and sequels in the pipeline. First of all, one that um, brought a big smile to my face is, do you remember the 1991 Joe Johnston's Rocketeer? I love the Rocketeer, Andy. Don't get me started on how great a film the Rocketeer is, and how disappointed I am that people haven't watched it and can find it on Disney Plus. Showed it the child when we first got Disney Plus, so in the height of lockdown. Loved it all over again. Fresh, exciting, different. Please don't tell me they're doing a remake. Just let me hope that it's some kind of reboot that follows on from the beauty and majesty of Joe Johnston's original The Rocketeer. Please tell me that, Andy. Well, David Oyelowo is going to produce the project which is being turned into a potential starring vehicle for the Selma and Jack Reacher actor. The film, you'll be happy to know, is titled The Return of the Rocketeer, which cool. suggests that it's not a remake. It is a sequel slash reboot. It's going to pick up from the threads that were left at the end of the last film. And um, yeah, it's very exciting for me because 
I basically given up on the, any hope that the Rocketeer would ever come back. It was a marvellous film, like you say. Absolutely. And it just never found an audience. Because I wouldn't want to see it being remade. I think it's perfect. I don't think it, it would yeah. be remade. I revisited it last year when it landed on Disney+, Plus, and what a great film it still is. It is. It captures Dave Stevens' marvellous book um, right down to, to the image of Cliff Sickord is taken is taken from from those illustrations they were if you've not read the yeah. books they were beautifully beautifully done by a, an artist writer who's no longer with us unfortunately david dave stevens and uh, it, it was classic it was never a big success as a comic book it, it became cult it just captured that cliffhanger 1930s serial rko movies perfectly right down to the yeah. design uh, and the movie even though it was a little bit watered down for disney yeah it just unfortunately never found an audience, but it's it's a beautifully made film. You can see why Joe Johnston got the Captain America gig, because yeah. there's there's a lot of sort of crossover, cultural crossover between the two. Uh, it's it's fantastic. So I hope that the the return of the Rocketeer feels fresh, can do something different. I don't mind that they can they can move the story forward, but um, as long as I, my worry was that they they weren't remaking a classic film. And, you know, the upside is people might go back and revisit The Rocketeer. I'm assuming all yeah. this is for Disney+. Plus. Yeah, it's uh, for Disney Plus production. It might get a cinematic release um, alongside it. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, Ed Rycourt, who penned Jessica Jones and Now You See Me, is penning this film. And okay. the focus is going to shift to a, a new retired Tuskegee Airman who takes up the new mantle of The Rocketeer. So it's a handing over the franchise because it would be a bit strange to have uh, the same... Rocketeer, because um, yeah. he's he's getting on a bit. <laughs> he is, and you know the fact that that takes it after World War Two, then um, yeah. because this, this, the film was set before that. And if you remember the end of the Rocketeer, I think he gives the rocket pack back to Howard Hughes, yeah. if I remember, in, in exchange for the gift of a new plane. Just saying, just just yeah. that's how I, I seem to recall it ending. On other Disney and sequel news, so the official go ahead has been given for a sequel to Jungle Cruise, the Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt's family adventure film that came out. Yeah, which we both talked about and both pretty much had the same reaction. Yeah. I, it was always it was always going to happen. There was always going to be a sequel, especially as as Disney do have sequelitis it, running through their bloods. They will sequelize everything. Uh, hopefully it's an improvement. Yeah. I mean, they, they can always just adapt the mummy too um, and just turn that into the sequel for this. Because let's be honest, Jungle Cruise was just the mummy with a different skin. Yeah, uh, the full the full creative team: Michael Green, director um, Carly Serra, uh, producers John Davies, John Fox, etc., etc., are all returning. So it's expected to keep the same kind of feel and aesthetic to it. And obviously, the lead cast of Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt, and also Jack Whitehall, are going to return. I'm not convinced it needs a sequel. No, but you know what. I'm happy to watch, like we said earlier, Dwayne Johnson in pretty much anything anyway. Yeah. So the fact that he's still still around is going to draw me back in. I've got a little bit of casting news for you. Uh, Lashana yep. Lynch joins Viola Davis in The Woman King. Joel Edgerton and Sigourney Weaver are starring in Paul Schrader's The Master Gardener. And it's been a lifetime coming, quite literally, as it's Francis Ford Coppola's passion project. I think it's been mentioned so many times. But that is Megalopolis, and it is mm. to star, by the looks of things, to cast Oscar Isaacs, who we'll soon see as Moon Knight, Kate Blanchett, Zendaya, and many more to come. 
which is exciting. That film has been around in some sort of form for absolute decades. And it looks like it's finally, finally going to happen. Finally going to come to light. Uh, other casting news, John Malkovic, uh, Gemma Chan, Sophia Butella and Hunter Schaefer have all joined the writer-director Tillman Singer for his new horror film, Cuckoo at Neon. Muppets Haunted Mansion has been casting and Darren Chris has revealed himself as one of the first stars of this Halloween special that is coming this year. Yes, wow. this year to Disney+. Plus. Uh, the story follows Gonzo on a ha- Halloween night as he's challenged to spend one night in the Haunted Mansion. Chris performed on stage with Miss Piggy this past weekend and has been cast as the caretaker of the mansion. Uh, me Time, Regina Hall from Perfect Strangers and Black Monday is set to join Kevin Hart and Mark Wahlberg in the comedy Me Time for Netflix. Hart is a stay-at-home dad who finds himself with some me time for the first time in years and gets up to some shenanigans with his former best friend, Mark Wahlberg. Okay, we'll be missing that one. Don't worry. Won't find <laughs> me on that, that list. So you don't like Kevin Hart? I mean, what's to love about it and what's not to love about it? <laughs> <laughs> Damned with faint praise. Uh, I, I kind of find that Kevin Hart, I, I can take to him only when he's on screen with Rock the Dwayne Johnson, to be honest with you. Mm. So once again, The Rock is the, the star power there. A film that we mentioned a, a couple of months ago when it was in early stages of ideas, which is The Menu, which is the film about a young couple who travel to a remote island to eat in an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a very special and lavish menu with some surprises. Well, there's casting finally being announced for it. Uh, Judith Light has joined Anya Taylor-Joy, Ray Fiennes, Nicholas Holt, Hong Chow, John Leguizamo, Janet McTeer in this film that we now know is a dark comedy for Searchlight Pictures. That's such a great cast. Great cast. Yeah, some great names in there. Have you heard this story about Joe and Anthony Russo, who have apparently, after taking some time off uh, from Marvel, have been in discussions to come back to Marvel, whether that's for the, the next uh, uh, Captain America movie or even their pet project, which apparently seems to be Secret Wars. But talks mm. between the filmmakers and Marvel, and apparently must be Disney as well, have stalled due to the fact of Scarlett Johansson's dispute with uh, with Disney. And uh, apparently it's that left them unsure that their next movie wouldn't be distributed. And therefore, how would they be paid? according to people familiar with with the matter. Now, I did double-check on this one. The story originated in the Wall Street Journal, seen it in a couple of other places. I've not heard anything about them returning, even though it was never off the cards. But um, it just kind of does go to prove that Scarlett Johansson's legal battle with Disney over how Black Widow was released and therefore the financial impact it had on her. And let's be honest, not just her makes for an interesting consequence. Now, the the bit that interests me is that Marvel didn't seem to have much involvement with how Disney distributed Black Widow because Disney are the, uh, are the distribution element of, of that. So reading from what we've spoken about, Kevin Feige, I don't know if, if this is true, whether their argument, the Russo's argument is with Marvel or is in fact with Disney. Yeah, uh, we, we, are, we don't know the full details of this yet, but it, it does kind of tie in and make sense because when Scarlett Johansson brought her case, we did say that it wasn't just about her, it was about everyone in the industry who's affected by these split releases and could see a loss in income. And directors in particular usually take a small fee yeah, they, and rely they get off on the what's box known office. as the back end. That's it. So this if this is true that 
everything stalled and it's all because of this. It highlights how important it was that someone like Scarlett Johansson started this lawsuit. And regardless of what you think of her opinion, I've seen people who attacked Scarlett Johansson online saying she's just been selfish and rich um, and just it's all me, me, me. But that's not what it was about. No, absolutely not. to see the bigger picture. This is about a changing industry. This is about changing contracts within that industry to be fairer and more reflective of the times that we live in. Absolutely. And we saw that over at Warner's with Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot, both very irritated and kicking off with Warner's, but that got sorted out seemingly a lot easier. And we know that Patty Jenkins is still not happy retrospectively with the idea of the split yeah. release. As she said, that she doesn't make films for the small screen. She makes them for the big screen. She always has the big screen in mind. And so she feels kind of, she feels let down when one of her projects is suddenly only being appreciated by people on the small screen as a result. So Paramount have moved up the release of the new Paranormal, paranormal Activity movie that we only found out existed like three weeks ago, uh, which was originally slated for a release next year, 2022. It's now dropping in the next few weeks. Say what? Say that again. They've Because when we reported that this film was getting made, we said that apparently it's pretty far down production. Turns out when, when they said far down production, Jason Blum actually meant it's ready. I've got it. <laughs> uh, I can release it tomorrow if you want. So it's getting released to manage to hit the target for getting that nice October buzz. Um, obviously in the US, it's going to go straight onto Paramount Plus. Uh, their own streaming service, and it will be used as a way to entice people to sign up to them over the October period. But internationally, we don't have Paramount Plus, so they will probably see a surprise drop in cinemas, particularly just for that Halloween weekend. I'm excited for it because, as Blum said, he never intended to make another paranormal, paranormal activity film. He thought that it'd been done to death, but they've reimagined it and they're taking a different approach and they're not redoing it. They're going to expand on everything that they've done before and do something slightly different. So, fingers crossed. And the, the final bit of news that we have is something that we've both been keeping an eye out on because we're both huge fans of the original adaptation and we're both huge fans of Stephen King. And that's Salem's Lot, which has got some casting news this week. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it last week that they cast um, the role of Ben Myers, but it seems as though they, uh, they're expanding their cast as much as Knives Out is, and John Wick 4 at the moment. Yep. Uh, Mackenzie Lee from The Assistant, Emmy nominee Bill Camp from The Queen's Gambit, Alfred Woodard from Luke Cage, and Spencer Treat Clark from Glass are all joining Lewis Pullman in the new film, which is an adaptation of Stephen King's 1975, not 1975. Still my favourite oh, King novel. It, it really makes you realise how old you are that you read <laughs> that as a child. <laughs> Um, the key roles of the villains, Richard Straker and Kurt Barlow, haven't been announced yet, nor have other key roles like Mark Petrie and Father Callahan. But Gary Doberman's penned the script and is directing Roy Lee, James Wan and Michael Clear are producing the film. And for those who don't know this, and we'll keep telling you the plot synopsis and we'll keep telling you to go and read the novel and watch the original series as well. The story sees author Ben Mears returning to his childhood home of Jerusalem's lot in search of inspiration for his next book. Only to discover his hometown is being preyed upon by a bloodthirsty vampire. There's no other Absolutely kind. Absolutely great story. Great story. And the cast lineup is is kind of working for me now. Yeah, looking forward to it. And that, as we say every week, is the news. So as you probably guess, we record a couple of days before the release of the show. 
and we get these these interruptions about the sad passing of, of a, an actor director or someone within in the industry and this week is unfortunately no different as we have i've had two sad passings uh, firstly i want to talk about michael k williams who died at the far too young age of, of 54. now i'm sure you know who michael k williams is but if you don't then you've you've got to appreciate the huge amount of work that you will have seen him in uh, the sopranos with his tv stuff alias community boardwalk empire the night of which he was fantastic of um recently to be seen in lovecraft country but probably best known for the character of omar little that he played in the wire which was an incredibly not only memorable performance but williams absolutely was on fire as that enigmatic criminal with a with a strict moral code and every time he was on screen just shone and and took away some of the some of the spotlight from the main characters he was that impressive a character and, and so impressively play, played gone baby gone 12 years a slave inherent vice the ghostbusters 2016 version motherless brooklyn he commanded the screen whatever film or tv episode he was in a very very stunning actor and, and sadly missed he was a great actor he always brought something significant to a role i mean he, i he even though i'd seen him in other things he rarely caught my attention when he was in boardwalk empire for me because i was late getting round to seeing episodes of the wire so i had i hadn't already latched onto him but in boardwalk empire whenever his character turned up i was excited to see where the story was going because he was such an interesting actor absolutely brilliant actor a really sad loss and far too young an age to be leaving the world at yeah. 54. He openly had uh, issues with drug addiction and we don't want to preempt what the story is, but there has been references that it, it could have been an overdose. We don't know at this stage the official line, but as, as Andy said, and I have to mirror that, uh, a, a sad loss to the industry. And another sad loss this week, and for an actor that hopefully you do know if you are a, a, a film file, uh, and that's the passing of Jean-Paul Belmondo, who was probably best known for Le Bouda Souf, or Breathless, as, as we have a tendency to call it in the, in the uh, shall we say, English-speaking communities. Uh, a, a stunning actor. He died at the ripe old age of 88 uh, and was a star of French new wave cinema. And if you've never had a chance, it's funny enough, I was only talking about this film just a, a few days ago. Uh, if you've never had a chance to see Le Bouda Souf, see it. It's an absolutely influential film and a must-see for, for any cinema lover. Um, Andy, you probably know a little bit more about uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo than I do. I, I'm sadly lacking in a lot of his roles, and looking through his, his list of outings, there's only a handful that I remember seeing, but he was one of those actors that was known for playing kind of like amoral and unsentimental kind of characters. And, and what was interesting about him is that he had offers from Hollywood multiple times to come across and bring his presence to Western cinema, and he consistently refused them. He insisted on sticking with French cinema and landed roles in films such as De Seeker's Two Women, Melville's Leon Morin Priest, and Bro De Broca's The Man from Rio, which The Man from Rio is one of the standout moments on cinema that I can say for him. I Breathless, obviously, people should go and track down Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless. It's an absolute masterclass of cinema technique. But The Man from Rio is the other one that really stands out from his back catalogue that I recall watching and 
absolutely fallen in love with him on screen. He just oozed cool. Uh, and he used that sort of European French look. He had that craggy face that that just made him absolutely unique looking. But there's a, you know, you find any shot from 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 Breathless, and he just oozes oozes cool. Um, fantastic career, fantastic actor. That was Jean Paul Belmondo. Still enjoying the show, still enjoying the film file, but realize you're one of that small maddening crowd that hasn't subscribed or liked it, then do so this very, very moment. Hit pause, head over to your favourite podcast platform, hit the subscribe button, and remember to like us. And hey, leave us a review. And if that's not enough, you can reach us in oh so many ways. Not only Ouija board, but... Over on Twitter, follow us at Filmfile UK. Over on Instagram, follow Filmfile UK. Or you can email us with anything you want Literally anything. I, I, I will read anything. I am I am open to ideas and suggestions. Uh, that you can get in touch with us there. To do with podcast. film, clearly. To do with the film file. Nothing. Oh else. no, just send just send me anything. Oh, okay. I'm happy. <laughs> you're opening up. You're opening up basically the the book in um, Evil Dead now into your life. You do know that. Klatu Barada Nick. You can you can do that podcast at filmfile.uk so if you're a regular follower of the film file then you know that every week we do a deep dive into films that well we just want to talk about in depth and explore and apparently we seem to have a thing for john carpenter as a lot of the films we have done in our deep dive have been john carpenter films and that's because of our not only because of our love of john carpenter films but they're great films to have those deep dives on, really. We did The Thing. We did Assault on Precinct 13. We covered Starman when it was my films that I'd missed. Yeah, so many. So now we are probably talking about one of the the more famous and recognisable John Carpenter films. It even has his name in the title, Escape from New York, which is stylized on screen as John Carpenter's Escape from New York. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control. I'm going in. Escape from New York, the high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the greatest escape of them all, is about to blow the future apart. This film came out in 1981. Uh, We mentioned it a couple of weeks ago as it was its anniversary. It's a kind of a science fiction film. It's definitely an action film, co-written, co-scored and directed by Carpenter himself and starred Kurt Russell, not at the beginning, just as a film fact of the beginning of their working relationship, but what made Kurt Russell into the leading man I believe he is today. Film also starred Lee Van Cleef, Donald Pleasance, Ernest Borgnine, Isaac Hayes, John Carpenter's then wife, Adriana Barbeau, and Harry Dean Stanton. 
the film's story is set in the near future world of 1997. And I love when you look back at old science fiction films and they look at things like the 90s or even 2001 for that matter. But anyway, it concerns a crime-ridden United States which has converted Manhattan Island, which at that point in history was probably crime-ridden, into the country's maximum security prison. While Air Force One is hijacked by insurgents and is deliberately crashed into New York City, ex-soldier, federal prisoner and thief Snake Plissken, played by Kurt Russell, at his Clint Eastwoody best, is given just 24 hours to go in, rescue the president and save the world. My memories of it are seeing it on the big screen and I took my kid sister to see it at the time and I've loved Escape from New York ever, ever since. Yes, it does look a bit hokey these days, the way that the computer effects are, the fact it's set in 1997. But you know what? Kurt Russell's portrayal of Snake Plissken is one of the definitive leading man performances. And I always think of Kurt Russell as this character. The eye patch, the Clint Eastwood impression, the way that he's just so darn cool. The rest of the film inspired a whole slew of very low-budget Z movies that were dystopian futures, but, but Snake Plissken and Escape from New York still stand out today. There's been many attempts to reboot it. There was a sequel, which we'll mention a little bit later, but I have such a good time with that. Is it a perfect film, Escape from New York? No, it isn't. It's just darn good fun. Andy, anything you want to say other than what I've said about Escape from New York? It's a perfectly entertaining film, let's be honest. Uh, this was a, an early VHS viewing for me and my friends in our early teens back home. And when I first watched it, it was the kick-ass moments of the film and Snake Plissken himself who drew me in. What a great presence. What a great anti-hero character. And some, like, some fun action moments. But it's also this is also another one of Carpenter's films, and you get this a lot with Carpenter's films, that your initial impression, as you get older and watch it through the years, you start to see the other levels that the film has and the dark satire, the poking a twisted eye at social issues through the lens of sci-fi environs that it inhabits is something that Carpenter did so perfectly. The character of Snake Plissken. The cynical, anti-authority, growling out his dialogue as though he's in a Sergei Leone film. A criminal past that should make him a villain, but you love him. You root for him and you want him to succeed in basically getting a, a bomb taken out of his neck at the end of it. It's You mentioned briefly the, uh, the, the it looks dated and it looks, a, it looks a bit wonky. Some of the computer effects look a bit off. It, I watched it last night and I've got the 4K. Um, UHD version and it still I think it still looks quite sumptuous yes you can tell where you can tell where the sets are and what isn't a real location yes you can see some of the effects work is a bit eh, just close to the edge but it still has the impact the CGI effects the cityscape computerized look wasn't even CGI and this was something that I only discovered a few years ago that it was literally just an actual model that he painted reflective paint around really? the edges and then shone a black light on it yeah to give it a computerized view screen kind of look because they didn't have that cgi technology then to make it so when you look at it like that the cgi effects actually seem a lot better because it wasn't cgi there's so much to love about this film and there's so much backstory to it that 
it's worth getting hold of any documentaries about the making of this film because the character Snake Plissken, it wasn't necessarily a John Carpenter creation. He had the idea for him, but Kurt Russell created that character, which is why you can't picture someone else in that role because he had so much input into everything from the eye patch to the gruffness to even the throwaway lines of dialogue like, I thought you were dead which evolved on the next film into something completely different. Everything came from the collaboration between Russell and Carpenter, which we've seen on other films that they worked on, that they worked together so well that it's no coincidence that their best films have them both connected to them. I love Escape from New York. Uh, I have to just go on a side note here and just say, when I put it on last night, my wife was sat in the room, like, just like, saw that I was putting on a film. And she went, oh, what's this as the titles are playing up? And she's like, is this an old film? It's like, well, it's, it's the 80s. I, I, I'm rather against you calling this an old film. And then as it started up, she's like, is this Snakes on a Plane? And I was like, you're close. You're close. <laughs> like, oh, it's, it's it's Escape from New York. I was like, yeah, Snake Pliskin, <laughs> Escape from New York. So you were on the right lines. And then she just went, I'm off to bed then. <laughs> I was just like, and at that moment, I realized that this is a film that I love because it, it it appeals to everything boyish. It's a pure boyish film. And I've had this throughout my life that I can't seem to get any females that I know work out what is so interesting about this character and this film. It is a laddish film. Yeah, my other half wouldn't wouldn't get this. You wouldn't entertain this at all. So to give it a little bit of um, a bit of depth into the film, you've got to remember back in the late 70s, post-Watergate, America was in a very, very different place. My first trip to uh, New York was in the um, early 80s. And it isn't the New York. It wasn't the isn't the gleaming ed- edifice that it is now, the big entertainment centre of the world. New York was crumbling. And there was that feeling of, of, of cynicism that was, was, was running through the nation. And, and Carpenter picked upon that. And he picked upon things like Death Wish, which were, were hugely popular. And, and hugely relevant at that part of, of, of the 70s when uh, he and Nick Castle started working on the on the script. Well, they didn't believe in the philosophy behind Death Wish, the sense of, of New York being a jungle. He wanted to make a science fiction version of that. It's a very, very low budget film with financing coming from, from different ways, including the British uh, production company and, and distribution company at the time, Goldcrest, which is sadly gone. The producers wanted Charles Bronson or even Tommy Lee Jones, but ended up with uh, uh, Kurt Russell. And as you said, had a great influence on the definition of the character and the way that the character went. Kurt Russell at that time was still trying to overcome the lightweight screen image he'd had because he'd come through the Disney comedies. Most people forget about Kurt Russell having started that. Unless, of course, you see him in Christmas Chronicles where it almost goes back to it. So it's a big leap forward for Kurt Russell as an actor and as a leading man into the leading man that we know today. And also the fact that he'd worked with Carpenter on their Elvis Presley movie, which is uh, which was made for TV and not seen by a great many people, but it, it helped cement their relationship. The film went on to do relatively okay at the box office. There'd always been talk of a sequel. There were many that had been written, pitched, but it took some time before Escape from New York ended up with a sequel. And that happened with Escape from L.A. Now, that reunited Carpenter and it reunited 
Kurt Russell in a film that is almost a remake of Escape from New York and doesn't quite work. This time, the sense of having a low budget doesn't pay off and doesn't add anything to the film. And while I still have some love for it, it certainly isn't isn't the sequel that we deserve to Escape from New yeah. York. Do you agree on that? Is that something that you feel with Escape from L.A.? Yeah, the, the sequel which came in 1996, whereas the first film, like you say, you drew upon the inspiration of like the distrust of the, the government after the Watergate scandal. This one was a reaction to... It was a reaction to the LA riots at the time and how LA had kind of got turned into a crisis area. And the US, in this point of view, is a totalitarian and Christian land. And after an earthquake had split LA away from the mainland, it became a new walled off island for people who breach the moral code of Christian America, who drink, smoke, take drugs, red meat, atheism, promiscu- promiscuous activity. All those folk are deported there. And it, it tried to play a satire on on the Hollywood aspect and, you know, the, the, you know, how eccentric the Hollywood life can be with plastic surgeries, etc. but it doesn't quite work. And it, whereas the, I mean, you could argue that the first film escape from New York was very episodic. That it was just like snake Plissken going from location to location to location, adventure, adventure, adventure questing. This felt more episodic. It felt like a series of skits cobbled together. Yeah. However, I've got, like you, I've got some love for it. And that love purely is because Kurt Russell throws everything into it again. And there's something about the character of Snake Poliskin that you could watch him making a cup of tea and being <laughs> engaged and intrigued. He's just delivers all the way through, even though the rest of the film around him feels wonky. He's still mesmerizing on screen and he's still got that presence. And especially like with this film, he goes to long black trench coat, camouflage pants and black top. And guns that he carries with him have you straight away going, oh, he looks cool. Um, it's a great character. And like I said earlier, on the first film, it was like, I thought you're dead. I'd heard you died. With this one, it was like, I thought you were taller. And I love the fact that they've got these little running jokes. There's something about the Snake Plissken character that makes even an average film like Escape from L.A. And everyone who loves Escape from New York admits that Escape from L.A. is underwhelming. But we still want another film. Yes. And fans of Snake Poliskin just want to see Snake Poliskin brought back to any setting. Escape from Bognor Regis, I'd be happy with anything. <laughs> I mean, there has been plenty of talk of a third one. There was even Escape from Space mentioned at one point. There was even a kind of a remake ripoff called Lockdown where John Carpenter, in fact, sued because he, he said the, the film was too much like uh, Snake Poliskin. And, and to be honest, it was. There's been many, many talks of Russell and Carpenter reuniting, even though I think both of them are getting on a bit and don't know how they would do it. And of course, there has been a remake being mentioned probably since the early 2000s. At one point, Robert Rodriguez was connected with it. Uh, Neil Cross, who's the creator of Luther, had written a script. Uh, And now it seems to be over with uh, Lee Whannell, who did The Invisible Man, uh, redeveloping it. Uh, Gerard Butler was mentioned to be playing Snake. I'd rather have my memories of Kurt Russell playing it unless they do something very, very clever with the entire Escape from New York uh, storyline. Yeah. And there's still room to explore that world. But for me, Snake Plissken will always be Kurt Russell. If you've not had a chance to see it, get a chance to see it because it is a proper film geek of a movie. And apparently later this year, there's a new publication of a new book about the making of the film 
Escape from New York, the official story of the film, to be published in September of this year by Titan Books. I'll add that to my Christmas list already. So that's Escape from New York. Let's talk about something that is happening in our very present. And those are the reviews of some of the films hitting your screen, whether it be cinema or home viewing, this week. Andy and I will be talking about Shang-Chi, The Legends of the Ten Rings. But before that, Andy, teasers with some of the films that you've seen. So we'll start with, on the big screen in limited release at the moment, is a film called Here Today, which sees Billy Crystal and Tiffany Haddish in a story of a veteran comedy writer named Charlie Burns, who's in early stages of dementia and strikes up an unusual friendship with a New York lounge singer, Emma Page. Thank you for bidding on me in the auction. I am so flattered that somebody your age would be a fan of my work. I don't know who the hell you are. My ex really wanted to meet you, so he bid. How much? Twenty-two. $2,200? That's fantastic. $22. It started at 20 and then it went up in 50 cent increments. I'm a comedy writer. All right, guys, very funny stuff. I also write for Broadway and movies. Why is your face suddenly bigger than it was before? Oh, my God, are you allergic to seafood? Oh, my God. She doesn't have insurance, and she really shouldn't be leaving him by herself. Your daughter is going to be fine. My... Why did you tell the doctor that I was your father? I was a little loopy by then. Are you doing anything right now? No. Want up some laughs? Come on, queen. Smile, girl. Smile. Marilyn Monroe from The Seven Year Itch. Mm. I'd be itching too if I had hot subway air blowing up my ass. Doctor, thanks for seeing me so late. How's the writing going? It's all of these young kids. In the tradition of George Carlin and Richard Pryor. Somebody's got to talk to Roger about his inflections. Come on, sub peanut. What, what is that, a very small peanut? Are you doing what we talked about? I try not to vary my routine. You have medicines to help you. I was backed up for like eight days. And you can always give yourself an enema. I'm saving that for my birthday. So Charlie has dedicated his life to his career as a comedy writer. He's been very successful in writing scripts for TV and also for film. And in doing so, he's become quite distanced from his children who don't know that he's now in the early stages of dementia and he's starting to get confused in some aspects of life and finding it difficult to recognise even his own children. He keeps a wall with their photos on, with names underneath them to remind him of who they are. But after a chance encounter with a lounge singer who won an auction in order to win a dinner with the writer, he manages to somehow strike up a rapport with her, despite the fact they come from two very different backgrounds. And she becomes the person who's closest to him, an understanding of where his mind is going to. And she encourages him to start using his writing skills to write down his life story so that all his memories will be remembered forever. The plot line of this is saccharin and mawkish. However, the film is bolstered by the presence of Crystal and Haddish. Crystal reminds us in this film of the gentle ease with which he can deliver lines, the snappy rapport that he has when it comes to skits and moments, but also making a very real and very focused performance. There's a few moments that may raise a lump in the throat or may make a bit of dust hit your eye, And it's all because of how he delivers it, not because of the material. Haddish as well, she works amazingly alongside him. And the pair's unlikely friendship absolutely makes sense, thanks to the on-screen chemistry that they share. But sadly, those good performances alone are not enough to mask that this film is overlong and extremely forgettable. And it would be, without those two star names, a hallmark special movie of the week. It's a shame because the names involved in this 
could have delivered something a bit better, but it just ends up being formulaic. Here today is on limited release. Worth seeing? Yeah. Just don't expect much from it. And also worth seeing just for Billy Crystal. It's been a long time since we've seen him on the screen. We've heard his voice in Monsters, Inc. and Monsters University and even the, the current Disney Plus series, Monsters at Work. But we've yeah. actually not seen him on the big screen in quite some time. What else have you got, Andy? And landed on Netflix this week is a film which is based on a true story following a Washington, D.C. lawyer named Kenneth Feinberg in the wake of the tragic events of 9-11. And that film is Worth. The shock from the attacks in New York and D.C. reverberate across the entire nation. What we're facing is a national emergency. We are proposing the Treasury Fund offering compensation to the victims. Ken, we'll have to negotiate all settlements. The victims and their families will be compensated based on economic value loss. That's where the formula comes in. 80%. Any fewer come aboard, the lawsuits that result could crater the economy. Why is it an equal payment for everybody? My daughters were just as much as anybody in a corner office. My wife died that day, and everything about this formula offends me. Sorry to hear that. But we can't bend the rules for every case. Why not? Congress gives you broad discretion, but when 7,000 citizens ask you not to be treated like some numbers on a spreadsheet, you act like that law came down from Sinai. Kenneth Feinberg was assigned to be in charge of the compensation for the families of the victims of the September the 11th attacks, and he must evaluate the value of human lives in an attempt to get a base payout as a bulk number to save the economy from individual compensations that would rise to the billions. However, as he works on the cases with his team, following this formula that he says is perfect to work out what calculations, he begins to realize that human worth cannot be necessarily calculated using a trusted formula. Now, worth overall is pretty generic when it comes to the base approach and story. And why wouldn't it be? There's only so many liberties you can take with a biographical film, especially when the subject matter is so sensitive. But where it lacks in anything new and surprising, it more than makes up for in the approach and the casting. The direction is respectful and confident. We do glimpse events that took place on that fateful day, but very tastefully. And it's shown via the impact on people who witness it from a distance or hear about it on the news. And we hear stories and testimonies being portrayed from how loved ones found out that their loved one was caught up in it. And those moments of the film are hard to not be crying at moments of because they are delivered so perfectly at the start of the film michael keaton sets sets out that he's a lawyer he's strictly business he's confident in his methods he's dedicated to his work he misses personal time with family and friends but over the course of the film his character starts to come in contact with those left those who were left behind who'd lost loved ones in the attack and he begins to begins to grow somewhat of a heart and starts to doubt how he should seek to aid the families and along the way, he encounters the ever-excellent Stanley Tucci as Charles Wolfe, a man who lost his wife in the events and has organised a campaign to change the compensation structure, challenging Feinberg to see past the numbers and see the people beyond. And the pair went on screen together, as you would expect from Keaton and Tucci, ignite the screen with their presence and make this film much more than what it would be on paper. I've read up on the true story since watching this, and that's the sign of a good bio biography is that once you watch it on screen, you want to know how faithful it is and how it represents people, and you research it more. And this more than makes you want to look into more about these people and to find out that, yes, this is quite a good representation of it, shows how brilliant Keaton and Tucci brought it. 
I recommend this film. It's on Netflix at the moment. It's an average story film, but it's bolstered by the presence of those two fine actors. And Worth is definitely worth anyone's time to watch. I wasn't interested in this because it's, it's not really in my wheelhouse, but the revealing of those two actors, the fact that it is a true story, now makes me interested. I could watch both of those actors in, in anything. I've seen Keaton in great movies. I've seen him in not-so-great movies. But what always elevates them is Michael Keaton and the same for Stanley Tucci. Put him in anything, he elevates it into something much, much more. So um, you've, you've actually sparked my interest. It seems to be Tucci's year this year because he's popped up a few times over the past few months in um, films that we've raved on about. Yeah, so. he's, he's always a great screen presence in everything. He's one of those actors who just can deliver any kind of role, but he's always still charming. It's just yeah. it's just him. Okay, so of course the big film we're going to be talking about this week is Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings from a little company known as Marvel, you may have heard of. I know that you don't like to talk about your life, but a guy with a freaking machete for an arm just chopped our butts in half. Who are you? On September 3rd, my father trained me to be an assassin, but that's not who I am. A Marvel legend. DJ Rise. You got this. Thank you. You can't outrun your destiny. My name is Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. Shang. 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 S-H-A-N-G. Shang. That's what I said. So what we're going to try and do is avoid spoilers. If you don't want to know anything about the plot, and we'll totally get it, go and make a cup of tea. Go and have a sandwich and come back to us in, in five minutes because we can't help but maybe give away some nuggets of information that perhaps you might not want to hear. If you've seen the film, stick around. Okay, so while reveling in what can only be described as a lackadaisical slacker life in San Francisco with his best friend Katie Aquafina, Shang-Chi, or at this stage in the movie, Sean, played by up-and-coming rising star after this performance, Simu Liu is confronted by the dark past he thought he'd put behind him forever. Forced to return to his father's organisation, his father being Wen Wu, a Chinese warlord, played with so much charisma that it's off the scale by Tony Lung, he returns to the dangerous organisation which has been hinted at throughout the MCU, the Ten Rings. Shang-Chi, must team up with Katie and his estranged sister, Zeeling to stop Wenwu for good. And that is basically, in a nutshell, the plot. Now, I'm going to go first. Normally, I leave it to Andy. And I said to Andy, while the film was just about to start playing, this is not going to be my Shang-Chi. This is, if you are familiar with Marvel, uh, if you're familiar with Marvel characters and the Marvel comics themselves, is kind of a D-list hero. For those who grew up with Master of Kung Fu, as I did, this was one of my go-to books. This, Daredevil, Fantastic Four, and X-Men were always the book I would have. Any book that has Shang-Chi in, I would buy. Predominantly the great Doug Mensch and the great Paul Galacy's run on it, which treated Shang-Chi as the son of Fu Manchu. Okay, we understand why he's not gone. they've gone down that route. They no longer own the rights to it. And you know what? It was just a little bit racist. This jumped in during the 70s on the Kung Fu craze. 
So initially it was meant to be a spin-off of, of Kung Fu, the David Carradine series, um, developed by Jim Starlin and Steve Englehart. But it went in its own direction. And under Doug Mensch's writing, Shang-Chi became one of the most complex characters in Marvel history, in my humble opinion. The fact that he was a Chinese character, the fact that he was the child of this uh, evil genius, the fact that he became uh, uh, a member of MI5, MI6, the characters related to him were related to Sherlock Holmes and James Bond. It was an absolutely stunning series. It dealt with action, espionage in an absolutely unique, a unique way, which made it the book that, it, that, that became so popular. I had to keep telling myself, during the build-up to this film, that this wouldn't be that Shang-Chi. And it isn't. It's much more the recent reiteration, whether that's led by the comics uh, or led by the film. I think it's a bit of both. And in, in, in classic Shang-Chi, it's, uh, it's the dark and the light playing against each other. But this is not the character I grew up with. So I always knew I was going to have a problem with it. And I did for the first 10 minutes of it. I had to keep telling myself, to let that version in my head go, the script that I'd written, to let it go and enjoy this film. And as soon as I did, then I got into it. Simu Liu is an absolute screen presence. Marvel, when it comes to casting, just get it right. I don't think they've miscast any of their leading characters. Doesn't look like Shang-Chi. Doesn't look like uh, the comic book Shang-Chi. He's a lot rounder, a lot more baby-faced than sort of the Bruce Lee light that he grew up with. And there were other actors in my head, it would have been absolutely perfect, including the guy who ended up playing Snake Eyes. But the mm. charm and ease that he brings to the screen is fantastic, as well as, probably down to the Kung Fu choreography, making you believe that he is a master of Kung Fu. And that's why I'd like to explore the character when it moves on, and hopefully it'll be a hit at the box office. One of the big surprises on this is that it, it feels like a Chinese movie. There is so much of this movie as captions, as people are talking yeah. in, in Mandarin. And I heard uh, I heard one review from a, a, a Chinese-American um, uh, who'd seen the movie and couldn't believe the accuracy of even how Shang-Chi's name is is pronounced and pronounced properly mm. in, 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 in Mandarin, for instance. And like Black Panther, I got a feeling that this will appeal to a predominantly uh, Asian audience because it is a predominant Asian cast. And the movie, because of that, makes it work and makes it into, into good. Actually, it's a really good film. It's fun. It's incredibly visual. It's the most un-Marvel Marvel film I think we've seen. And, yeah. and Andy will probably give you a, a bit more of an insight into that. But my take on it is, no, this is not my Shang-Chi. This is the MCU Shang-Chi. There is a great difference, a great divide between these two characters. But I'm happy to go along with this new interpretation of the character. And that's what it is. And I would love to see more. Had a great time with it. There's some wonderful surprises. It goes down a, a, a mysticism route, which I didn't think it was going to go down to. That wouldn't have been in my script, for instance. But it works. It works on every level. And as I said, this is the most unmarvel Marvel film that we've seen so far. And we're starting to get that with this new phase. Andy, over to you. Feige said 
that this phase of Marvel would not follow the formula. And we've said before that we don't believe that this formula is actually a thing. We know that there's thematic like similarities in a lot of Marvel films, but they're not all the same. And that's due to the source material, don't you think, Andy? Yeah. Whereas, the, yeah, we were sceptical about whether this would just be yet another Marvel origin story and do the usual setup and the usual build and then a final confrontation with major villain. And whilst there is a final confrontation in this, there's a lot of surprises along the way. And like you say, this feels like a Chinese mythological film. It feels like Chinese storytelling. It's reminiscent of everything to do with Chinese or Hong Kong cinema. And it doesn't feel like a Marvel film. And I love it for the fact that it's basically saying, okay, Endgame was the closing chapter of what you thought Marvel was. This is what Marvel can grow to be. And with us having Eternals on our doorstep as well, only a couple of months away, and that looks to be a very different film, Feige appears to have been right that Marvel isn't just going to deliver the same stuff that you've seen before. And that's great because audiences who are expecting just a repetition of the past films that they don't need to see will now be brought in to this new phase of Marvel with new characters. And what a great one to start with. This is the official starting point for the next, this phase, because Black Widow was, it was a coda yeah. to the previous yeah, phases the of Marvel. to what we'd seen before and those characters. Whereas this is, okay, we're going to start off brand new, like we did when Iron Man came to the big screen. You don't know anything about this character. Boom, here you go. And right out the gate, the film set out its stall. The backstory of the origins of Shang-Chi tell a very sumptuous crouching tiger kind of story and the fight that goes on between his between his father and mother isn't just a fight it's it's a it's a seduction and a courtship all in one beautiful like i say crouching tiger style of kung fu fighting and defense it's majestic and it's shot perfectly we don't have this up close and snappy editing kind of approach going with the action here we're allowed to see the fights we're allowed to see the choreography that they've put time into fleshing out and developing and even later on in the film when it gets to like the modern day setting with like the <laughs> i mean i have to smile at the idea of a bendy bus especially knowing that <laughs> no one knows what a bendy bus is except for those of us who've been living in sheffield for quite a significant amount of time um but that bus fight that you see glimpses of in the trailer to see the whole thing play out so brilliantly that nothing gets confusing you can follow it all the way and it's got a very jackie chan early hong kong action film aesthetic to it that and there's a fight on the exterior of a skyscraper on scaffolding were highlight moments of the, the kind of action and entertainment because it combined comical moments with thrill, peril and action. Now, you've said about the key casting of Simu in the lead role, which is absolutely fantastic. He's so engaging and so easy to like within the role. But you skirted over one bit of casting that I think we were both sceptical of. And we were both wondering whether this would upset our love of the film. And that's Aquafina in the support role as Katie, because she tends to play the same kind of character in every film she's in. Yeah, that kind of a little bit crazed, a little bit wide eyed, talking 10 words a second. Um, and as, as I said to you before we started recording, she was the reason that I didn't love Raya and the Last Dragon. As soon as that character entered it, 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 it threw me completely out of what was a, a great piece of animated film, but it was her presence in it that they just played around her shtick. And that, I, I agree with you, that was going to be my problem, other than not being the Shang-Chi in my head. 
but her casting was was looking awkward. And in the early part of the film, I, I think we both felt the same. That it was like, oh, they are going down that route with her, and uh, this might upset it. And it gets to the point where she decides that she's going along on this adventure with him. And initially, I was like, do you have to? Um, yeah. But then, very swiftly, I grew to like her, and I could see the charm, and I could see the heart developing between the two. They are best friends. And they play so well alongside each other. And there may be a hint of like, maybe there's more than just friendship under the surface there. And it's believable. And she's likable. And by the end of it, you're rooting for her. And that is marvellous. To be able to turn around a character's shtick that normally grates you and actually show you the, the you know, how, how that character expresses themselves like that because of insecurities and awkwardness. And make it work. And give her depth. She's a marvellous co-star. And it's also refreshing to have a leading lady role that isn't your typical leading lady. It isn't like your perfect, perfect looking and like, you know, perfectly dressed. She dresses downbeat. She wears a bum bag at all times. She's awkward. She seems uncomfortable in situations. And she's magnificent. And I can't wait to see her in future Marvel films as a result. We never thought we'd say that before the, we watching the film, would we? No. Um, obviously, the rest of the cast, Tony Leung and Michelle Yeoh, deliver as marvellously ex- as expected. You expect names like that to deliver great. The surprises in this film are what really, really made this work for me. And this is a film that I, I love from the initial watching. And I really want to re-explore because it's sat with me since. And I've started to realise I like it more than what I think I initially liked it as a result. And it's the twists and turns. And we're not, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but there's characters who appear that you maybe didn't expect and you are glad that they appear in there. And there's a way that the villain is represented that was actually quite refreshing for a Marvel film. Yeah, let's talk about Tony Leung and let's talk about, as without giving anything away, uh, when Wu stroked the Mandarin, Shang-Chi's father, the head of this crime syndicate, uh, the Ten Rings. Um it, it, it was given a, a fresh approach. It was elements that we saw, interesting enough, in Thanos, that he was given as yeah. much a backstory so you understood the character and why he had those motivations. Uh, and this is probably one of the, the best developed, other than, I, I think, uh, Thanos, uh, Marvel villain that we've had so far, because, boy, not only is Tony Leung a great screen presence and just oozes charm, and he's so easy on the screen, you know, and, and a lifetime of, 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 of great roles behind him. He, he brings all that. He brings his A game to this and, and offers something just absolutely unique into the yeah. character's motivations. Unique. It's hard to talk about this without spoilers, but we're, we're not going to spoil anything because it was nice surprises for us. But it's the fact that you actually can kind of see his viewpoint, you can act, and a good villain, you should always be able to believe that they're doing what they think is right. They're not just doing it for megalomania and power, rah ha ha. They're doing it because they've just got a misguided view for some reason. And this is a great villain. I I thoroughly loved the the look, the style, and once it goes fully mystical by the end of this film, I was completely absorbed in it. It's got a beautiful uh, final battle. And when I say beautiful final battle, that's not words that you normally put together. But when you see it on screen, you will realize that it's a beautiful final battle that deserves the big screen to appreciate because it's sumptuous. It's majestic. Shang-Chi, as an example of how the MCU can go this phase, 
is a straight out the gate hit for me. And I am so excited for everything coming forward. I've got to agree with the trepidation I had. I still don't think it's the film that I wanted to see. I've got to give kudos to uh, Destin Daniel Cretton, uh, the director. And it was, a, again, what Marvel seemed to be doing, finding these interesting indie darlings. He'd only made, uh, I believe, short term 12 before that. But he understood in this movie, and this is why it worked. Uh, it's a film about family dynamics. It's a, it's a family relationship film. And that's the heart of it. And despite all the action, and the action is is classic kung fu action, innovative martial arts, and that that, that you would hope and want from from that, and still being a Marvel family friendly film. You know, there's the bruising bus battle uh, at the beginning of the film. There's the epic showdown at the end. Um, a lot of it, even though this it's CGI enhanced in places, still feels visceral and brutal and feels like we're watching a Chinese, interestingly, and that's the, the words that we used, a proper Chinese uh, martial arts film. It, it's a success. I hope it does well at the box office. We want to see more of these characters. The film firmly introduces Shang-Chi into the Marvel Universe by um, uh, a couple of cameos, which are absolutely well worth it. And, and yes, I'll be sticking around for more. And a bit like you, Andy, I can't wait to see it again. That Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings out on release right now. Anything else that we need to look out for, Andy? Uh, so coming up this next week at cinemas, there's Cop Shop, which is Gerard Butler and Frank Grillo in a film from Joe Carnahan. A con artist tries to outwit and outrun an assassin. Um, I, I'm actually quite signed up to this. I've changed my mind on Gerard Butler. And um, I'm now, I mean, I think it's more the Frank Grillo and Joe Carnahan yeah. approach here that is bringing me in. But I can see this kind of working. Uh, you've got Respect, which is the Aretha Franklin story with Jennifer Hudson in the lead role. And there's Malignant, which is a film that sees grisly visions of murders plague a young woman in a psychological horror. Over on TV and streaming, if you didn't get to see it earlier this year, Minari, the Oscar-nominated story about what roots us, focusing on a Korean-American family who find new challenges after moving to Arkansas to follow their dream, lands on Sky. Uh, Bombshell, the excellent film with Charlize Theron and Margot Robbie. True, true life story about ambitious and strong women in the world of the US news networks. And Pixie, a film that I had a lot more love for than you did. We both enjoyed it. Yeah. Me to more effect. Uh, Lock, stock and two jars of porter. Just expect fun black comedy crime caper. And over on Amazon, Straight Outta Compton is well worth checking out. That lands as their main pick of films of the week. Um, right, so... Sticking with all things Marvel, we mentioned right at the beginning of the show that we will be looking at What If. Time. It's changeable. Who are you in this vast multiverse? Follow me. Enter the multiverse. Here we go. Of infinite possibilities. Oh. Let's be honest, we've been through weirder. Who are you? What if? So, Andy, this week's episode of What If? What did you think? This is my favourite episode 
so far. And I, I just felt that it's opened up so many thoughts and so many ideas of how the what-if animations could actually be tying in to the MCU. We've said this before, that Beagie said that they're not just individual episodes, that they will serve some purpose within the greater MCU timeframe. And this was the episode that I think hints a lot more as to how it's going to link in. We saw Doctor Strange. We saw Doctor Strange, who instead of him losing his hands in that fateful crash and then seeking a way to get his get his abilities back and then going down the mysticism route, mysticism route, he lost his love. He lost his beloved in that crash. And when he goes down the mysticism route and discovers that he can go back and affect time, he keeps trying to repeat the events of that day to take different approaches to see if he can save her and each time failing. Because in this world, that was a set moment in time that had to take place. But he doesn't let that stop him and he goes down darker routes in order to try to bring back his love. And this is a great theme. This is a good character who's doing something misguided purely out of love and they're lost in the confusion because their mind cannot accept the loss. And I think to tell such a strong story in a short animation runtime was so skillful. It had some of the best animation that, I mean, the show's had great animation, but it had some great moments in this. And I'm loving the fact that the watcher himself is becoming more prominent in the backgrounds of moments. I was going to say exactly that. I think that worked. With this episode, it was noticeable more. The Watcher was more and more interested in this episode than in previous episodes. And that makes me wonder whether that signifies that this version of Doctor Strange is the one that's going to be more important across the greater Marvel Universe. And both me and you commented on this when we saw the Spider-Man No Way Home trailer on the big screen before um, Shang-Chi this week. Because there does there does seem to come across, especially in the in the train sequence, and cl- clearly we know nothing yeah. more than what you guys do. It seemed to be a very much a, a darker Doctor Strange. Um, There's that moment on the train sequence that you initially think when you look at the trailer that he's helping Spidey to not fall off this train. Why do you have to help someone who's stuck to the side of a train? And you look at it now and you go, that does look like he's a bit angrier and a bit darker. Could that be this Doctor Strange? Could it be that what we're seeing with the Doctor Strangers in the Spider-Man film are multiple variations of Doctor Strange? I loved this episode. I think I thought that this is the one episode that really does have more than just a standard what-if story. This is one that I want to see this character going forwards further now, more than any of the others. Apparently one of the characters, and if you've not seen it yet, we, we don't want to give anything away too much. Apparently one of the characters is finding their way into the MCU, which would be interesting that they are they are so connected to what's happening on the big screen as well. I think we're probably going to see much more of of this in the multiverse movie, the Doctor Strange yeah. movie. But yeah, you're right. It had a, it had echoes of me from the Fantasia sequence, you know, the uh, the Haunted mm-hmm. Mountain one. Um, it reminded me of that animation-wise, especially the colouring on it. There were some twists and turns I just yeah. didn't expect. Very heartfelt. Great character. Um, sorry, start that again. Great voice casting of, of each character. It's good to see Benedict Cumberbatch in it. And Rachel McAdams returning back to the role that she was only very briefly in, to be honest, in, in Doctor Strange, and I thought because ill-served as a character. Uh, so to make that the heart of it and the centre point of it, um, yeah, you're absolutely right, Andy, a great episode. And it also proves that each episode in this 
anthology doesn't have to follow the set route so we had you know the same beats in the first one of captain america with with uh, the captain carter episode and then we changed that up with the star lord one and we changed it up again in the avengers one and the beats are can go in any direction they are not just well if you just move this then you're going to get the same story but with a different character and i thought that's an interesting way to have approached this that by giving us what we expected in the first first episode and then really shaking the can as we've gone through so looking forward don't know what next week's is going to be but that's the joy of what if as well being able to watch it weekly and be surprised and unexpected every time anyway we'll be talking about what if again next week but before we go as that's about it we like to round each episode off with our neat things things that we've seen heard watched tasted you name it if we've liked it it's a neat thing and traditionally andy goes first what's your neat thing for this week andy my neat thing for this week is a short animation series that landed on disney plus this past week and in the light of the news that we broke last week of the passing of ed asner this is the perfect way to remember him and that's doug day's a selection of short animations focusing on what happened after Up. And what happened is that Carl Fredrickson eventually got himself another house in the city, selling the Zeppelin that he had at the end of um, Up, and just settled into a simple life with his talking dog, Doug. And it's purely focusing upon the partnership and the relationship between the two. Ed Asner reprises his voice. Uh, Bob Peterson is voicing Doug again. And from right from the start of the very first episode, with Doug waking up as a dog would do and going, I'm awake. That means the human needs to be awake <laughs> and running up the stairs to wake up Carl Fredrickson. And I was just like, oh, I'm in. It straight away got the charm. And the first episode was a charming one where he's trying to protect a bird table that has been set up. And a squiddle is slowly stealing feed from there. And it played on everything that I loved about Up. The relationship between Carl Fredrickson and this companion of his, this dog. And whilst it could be quite easy, because they're only like 10 minutes animations, to binge watch all of these within the space of an hour, I'm taking my time because I want to treat myself to this. This is something that I am every few days go back and watch another one then go back and watch another one a few days later. So I'm only three episodes in so far, even though I could have binged them, because I don't want to just have this all wash over me. I want to savour this. It's a great animation, because Pixar have had a mixed history when it comes to these animations. Yeah, they have. I've not got into... um, I've not got into uh, Monsters at Work, to be honest. I've tried. It's, It's just not landed for me. I've struggled with that and I'm not even going to start to mention my feelings on the Forky asks a question or all the multiple meta shorts that they've released over time because I'll get too angry and I'll start breaking things. But this is an example of Pixar delivering something that works as a short animation. They've made these two lovable characters even more lovable as a result. And like I say, with Ed Asner passing away last week, this is a perfect way to remember him in the role that we both said was the perfect embodiment of everything that he was. I'm going to stick with uh, Disney Plus and I'm going to stick with animation. I'm going to talk about uh, a series which I I found quite accidentally, uh, and that's Disney's Short Circuit. Now, these are uh, experimental shorts with brand new animators and brand new filmmakers uh, being allowed to do literally whatever they want 
within literally short animations of, of, a, of a couple of minutes long. So each episode, you get to meet the filmmaker. They talk about why they've made this particular film. Uh, and they, they're allowed to make it in any animation style that they wish. Most of them are very much lacking in, um, in actual uh, voices. It's very, very beautifully shot and purely very, very visual. And there are a stunning, stunning uh, series of programs. We've just entered into season two. Season one, I'm about halfway through. There's not been one yet that disappoints. There's some that are better than others, of course, but not one yet as, as, as disappointed. And each one has an absolutely unique uh, visual style, a unique storyline yeah. that's clearly very personal to the director. Beautifully done. And of course, I'm, I'm believing that we're going to see more and more out of these um, out of these new filmmakers. It's a wonderful little series. Uh, you can binge them or you can watch them individually, but each one is so well made and so much love has gone into these collections. And collections probably the best word to describe them rather than seasons because they do feel like like art pieces. So my neat thing this week is Disney Short Circuit on Disney Plus, well worth catching. And they are literally three or four minutes long. Splendid stuff. Fantastic. And that's it. We're done for another film file. We'll be back next week with more deep dives, more news, more reviews. And I'll be back alongside uh, the word co-host just doesn't seem to express it enough. Partner in crime. That's close enough. My yeah. Sundance to my butch, <laughs> Andy Meakin. Uh, anything planned for this week, Andy? I've got I've got a week off coming up after this week. Um, oh, it's it's mine and Kerry's twentieth wedding anniversary next week. Well, we congratulate you both. Are you doing anything special? I've not got the invite yet to the remote island. We normally have a big party, but this year we're just going to have something simple. And me and Kerry are just going to take a break from the kids and go out for the day. Um, oh, Saturday and Sunday, we've got different plans set up. So it's just going to be it's just going to be a couple of days just for us. Fantastic. Well, have a great time, and I, on behalf of all our listeners, wish you a very happy wedding anniversary. We'll see you again next week. But before you go, are you crazy? Nobody gets to meet the Duke. You meet him once, and then you're dead. Bye.